Good morning. Please be seated. In 1957, our local boys club decided to take a pack of boys to a farm for the first time. I have to explain, I'm a city boy. Some of us had seen cows. A few had seen chickens. No one had seen a pig or anything like it. It was a pretty thrilling experience to anticipate. We piled onto the bus, and I stuck with my pack of nine-year-olds, my pals. We all had a packed lunch in our laps and anxious to get there. One of our friends had his lunch packed in a Tom McCann shoebox. And we thought that was unusual, but he explained, I have a plan. I'm going to catch a critter. I'd like it to be a snake, but I'll take a lizard or I'll take a frog, but I'm bringing it home. So during the day's activities, we were pretty much booked up as to what we did, but lunch came, and we sat on hay bales at the farm, and our friend took off for a field, and it wasn't minutes before he went, hey, come come here. Now, it wasn't a happy look on his face. It was fright. It was concern. So we didn't run to his side. We kind of gingerly stepped up to where he was. And his face told it all. In that shoebox in front of them, he had captured something so horrible, so unimaginable, that his brain couldn't comprehend it. And as we walked up and looked into that box, we were pretty sure it was from outer space. (laughs) And if it wasn't from outer space, we had seen monster films. This was clearly the result of a nuclear attack in the Pacific. It was horrible. It was a creature like we could never have imagined. It was a potato bug. <laughs> and it scurried, and you know how they are, and you could feel it here, it's the little feet on the, on the cardboard box. And we shuddered with fear. We didn't know what to do. We didn't know whether it could fly, bite, sting, leap. But being nine-year-old boys, we wanted to take advantage of the situation. So we looked at the fellow who had captured it and said, touch it. He says, I'm not touching it. And of course, being nine-year-old boys, what are you, chicken? We'd touch it, but you're a chicken. Eventually, he worked up the courage to get near the box. And he tried to touch it, but you could see his finger shaking You could hear his breath shortening. He was almost there, and suddenly he drooled. He drooled onto the grass and into the box. We laughed so hard. A moment destined for a nickname. (laughs) Had we been kind young nine-year-olds we would have called him Braveheart or Gutsy 
for getting that close. If we had had a sense of humor, we could have called him Bugs. But we were nine-year-old boys, and we were cruel. And to this day, if he walks through the door at 65 years old, we will say, hey, here comes the drooler. <laughs> Nicknames can be cruel and inaccurate. And this morning I'm going to try to make the case against the moniker Doubting Thomas. Imagined what was going on there. Jesus had been crucified. The Messiah had been murdered. Their door was closed, locked, and probably barricaded. And they were saying to themselves, what's going on here? No one was sure. It was chaos. Now and then they would think back to that Sermon on the Mount, to the feeding of those thousands upon thousands of people. The people, the excitement, the teachings, the miracles. Obviously something big had been happening back then. And when Jesus came into Jerusalem and the cries of Hosanna from the crowds and the palm leaves strewn in his path, they knew this is big. Then what happened? Now they were huddled, frightened and confused behind locked doors. And it was frightening how plans had changed so quickly. Plans. These disciples had aligned with a man, a man who was supposed to bring the kingdom of heaven on earth. He was going to defeat Caesar, he was going to defeat all the armies, and he was going to end attacks on the Jewish people. They were committed to Jesus, the healer, the teacher, the new king in waiting. And when they looked at him, they could just see the crown. But the cross and the crucifixion changed everything. These disciples had walked away from their houses, their neighbors, their friends, their careers, their families. And for what? For nothing now. They had risked everything and lost everything. They had been giddy with expectation. There was speculation. And there was a good helping of ambition there, too. James and John even asked him, who's going to sit on your left-hand side? Who's going to sit on your right-hand side? They wanted to share that earthly power, that respect, that honor. But now there was little more than fear, distress, and overwhelming distress. What had gone wrong? They wondered, where's Thomas? And where's Judas? Something has gone very wrong. And then it began to sink in. Oh, Lord, what have we done? We followed a man who couldn't even lift a finger to save himself. Who couldn't pay for his own burial. He's dead. His flesh is in ribbons. Jerusalem's streets are streaked with his blood. And they had to wonder, where do we go from here? There had been news that the body of Jesus had disappeared. And they thought, was it dogs dragging the body away? Were there Romans 
who had taken it, which had thieves taken it? Or could it be that possibly, nah. You see, it's hard to believe again. It, what faith is difficult when hopes and dreams are crushed. And they said to each other, where can we hide? Is there any place for us to flee to? What do we do now? And we talk about doubting Thomas. Jesus appeared through the barricades, through the doors, through the locks. Was he a ghost? He spoke. He rebuked them for their lack of faith. He showed them his scars. He breathed on them. And when Jesus left, they believed again. They were reassured. And then Thomas showed up. Have you ever walked into a room and people will say to you, you will not believe what just happened? And you know yourself that tale is being exaggerated a bit as it's being told to you. Well, there was Thomas. You'll never believe what just happened. And they told him. And he doubted. He had been as disillusioned as every, any one of them. And he said, through the door, he came through the door, he, he ate, he ate fish, he showed you his scar. No. When I can put my fingers in those scars, then I'll believe. And a week passed, and Jesus appeared again. He offered his wounds to Thomas, and Thomas believed. But that's not all. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in the book. Signs. Miracles? More miracles? Apparently Jesus was determined that he was going to cement their faith. Now let's look at the words of Jesus to Thomas. Have you believed because you've seen me? Because blessed are those who've not seen and yet have come to believe. And I read that and I think to myself, that's not fair. We all have doubts sometimes. When I'm frightened, why can't Jesus come to my house and calm my fears? When I'm in pain, why can't he come and stand by my bedside and reassure me? When I'm confused or lost or, or depressed, why can't he pop in for lunch? Why must I have faith without the benefit of miracles? And the answer is this. Daily we are given a life and a universe full of miracles. It is our job to see them. As a nine-year-old boy, in that shoebox, I had no problem seeing a miracle. In Luke, Jesus tells us anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And I believe that we will be reassured by miracles if we can feel the same awe and amazement that a child feels. That is where our miracles are. That childlike place is where God breathes on us. 
As adults, we have a different view of day-to-day life. That's, it makes it so easy to mask the miracles all around us. We cannot experience often the wonder and amazement of a child. I can take a gadget out of my pocket. I can press one button and be talking to a friend across the country. I can be looking in his face and talking to him. Any of us can drive after service today to Sacramento, about an hour from here, and go to the airport, hand someone a piece of plastic, and we can fly through the air and in a few hours' time be on the other side of the planet. I can go to my computer and put in a search term into Google, and they will search a half a million, a half a billion sites in a second and a half. There are people in this congregation today who have or know people who have a brand new knee, a new hip, a new cornea, a new heart, even a new nose. When we look at the moon, we're seeing the sun reflecting off of the moon. What we're seeing is the sun's light. We are a reflection of God's love for us. We were made in the image of God. We can reason, regret, mourn, invent, remember, forgive, and love. What amazing creatures are we? But we couldn't see God any more than we could stare at the sun. I remember a night in 1967. I was in basic training, and they put me on night guard duty. And on that duty, I looked up at a large, probably a larger sky than I'd ever seen in Texas. And I saw more stars in that sky than I'd ever seen. And I tried to comprehend the infinite nature of the sky. Unending universe. My brain tried to grasp that, and it began to hurt. We've all laid on our backs on a summer night and watched the stars and tried to comprehend a universe that goes on forever. At least our adult brains try to. We've tried to imagine also our all-powerful, all-knowing, ever-present, and infinite God. But we try to do it with reason and rationality. But it quickly turns into wonder and humility and frustration. But if we can stare at the stars like children, into the endless brilliance, and if like children... We can marvel at the miracles of everyday life. We may find ourselves repeating the very words of Thomas. My Lord, oh my God. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.